As we move into Daniel chapter 10, we are going to get an inside look at spiritual warfare and specifically the spirit world and how it works. And there are principalities and there are powers and there are battles going on behind the scenes. An intriguing look into spiritual warfare today on Walk in Truth. You're listening to the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now, here's Pastor Michael. In the third year, Daniel 10.1 of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, Daniel 10.1, who was named Belteshazzar. You would recall in chapter one that part of the uh, assimilation process was to rename these Hebrew young men so Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. The message was true that Daniel received and it was one of great conflict. If you have an NIV, it says it concerned a great war, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Now just to set the context, Daniel's chapters 10 through 12, or these three chapters, 10 and 11 and 12, form a unit. They're a unit of prophecy that moves into the uh, centuries that would follow Daniel's life on down through Greece, et cetera, as we've looked at the Roman Empire in Daniel two and seven, and up through history from the time that the calendar switched into the AD time all the way up until the return of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna see that in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10 sets the table by telling us how the vision came to Daniel, and then chapters 11 and 12 will give us the content. Chapter 11, we'll see over 100 prophecies that detail things future to Daniel, and in chapter 12, we will see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and the rapture, all in chapter 12. So we have some exciting things ahead. The vision in this unit of all three chapters is revealed to Daniel as he sought the Lord. Some of the questions we may wanna ask as we begin to tackle a chapter like this is why do we have so much conflict in the world? What is it about humanity that causes us to have conflict in nations, in cities, in families, and as individuals? Sometimes we don't need to look past our own front door to know about conflict. Conflict seems to be a common human dilemma. Where does it come from? Well, much of the conflict in the world, when you look at the big picture of the world, could be attributed, at least in part, to a war, a spiritual war that is being waged. The hatred against the nation of Israel is one example of that. How do we explain this little nation in the Middle East receiving so much persecution and hatred throughout you know, thousands of years? Well, it's explained in the sense that the Messiah would come from the nation of Israel. And of course, the nation of Israel uh, is God's chosen people, and of course, the church is grafted in. When you look at the world, you look at wars that have happened through time, you look at the conflicts happening even today, it's not hard to imagine that there must be something more sinister, something deeper going on than just us fighting over land and territory and being selfish and petty. There is something more sinister going on. I'm not saying it's happening behind every scuffle or every conflict, 
but the major movements of the world, and especially these world empires that have been unfolded to us in this book, seem to have territorial powers or spiritual powers influencing them. I'll give you some examples that would resonate. Some of you have studied Isaiah 14, and you know in Isaiah 14, there's a whole section about Satan and his five famous I will statements. And he's basically saying, I'm gonna be like God, I'm gonna elevate my throne above the stars, etc." Well, that prophecy actually starts out addressing the king of Babylon. But then it moves into this other spiritual entity behind the king. I'm pretty sure it's Babylon's king there. And then the king of Tyre being addressed in Ezekiel chapter 28 also moves in to a deeper picture of Satan. And the example is that he was in the Garden of Eden and, and he was made beautiful by God and became prideful. These examples in scripture take you from a human leader to a spirit, and in this case, both in both instances, theologians would largely agree, Satan as a power behind the power. When you study the book of Revelation, you know that the beast or the Antichrist ultimately is energized by satanic power, including the false prophet. So this is not foreign to the Bible that you would have a world leader who would then have some sort of dark power. Now what we want as Christians is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? But we know there's always a battle between good and evil. So while we might experience the power of the Holy Spirit, there is such a thing as dark power, not on par with God's power. Satan is not God's equal on the evil side. He is a fallen angel. But he still has power, and the power is significant. All you have to do is read the book of Job to see how much power he can throw at a single individual and other places that we can see where he tries to ruin people in possession and so forth. And so as Daniel marks the time, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he tells us that he got a message. And that message was one of great war. It concerned great war or it concerned a great conflict. There is something deeper, more sinister going on in the world. The question we might ask is why? The answer is because there is a spiritual struggle going on in the heavenlies or in heavenly places. As you look at uh, Ephesians 6.12, there are principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's kind of a recap of uh, Ephesians 6.12. And so there is a battle beyond the battle. As Christians, we are to take up the full armor of God in light of that battle. And so uh, some of you got a hold of the book that I wrote on it. There's been a lot of good books written on spiritual warfare and some not so good. But I wrote a book called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God to tackle some of these ideas and why God has given you specific pieces of armor for specific ways that you may be tempted or attacked. You have a belt of truth because Satan is a liar. You have a breastplate of righteousness because the, Lord, the uh, Lord wants you to be righteous, but Satan wants to infiltrate your heart and pollute it. You have a shield of faith with which you can extinguish, how many? All of the flaming missiles of the wicked one. You have shoes of peace to go and preach the gospel because the enemy often tries to steal your peace. You have a helmet of salvation because the enemy's always trying to lie to us about who we are in Christ. 
and we need to be secure in our salvation. And this is how it works. A sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So God, being your Father, loves you. He cares about you. He's obviously eternal, and he knows the battle much better than we do. And so he's given us spiritual provisions for a spiritual battle. So don't feel like just because you hear about such things and it may be new to some of you that you're out there naked and alone. That's not the case at all. In fact, the armor of God is God himself. When you really break down what the armor is, uh, Romans 13 tells us in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is synonymous with putting on the armor of light. Whenever you put on the armor, it's just simply a metaphor for putting on the power of God. And that's what you have as a Christian is you have the power of God. Now notice in verse one that it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Persia has now uh, become the world empire, uh, taking it from the hands of Babylon. And at this time when Daniel receives this message, he is uh, probably 88 to 90 years old. Because remember, there was gonna be a 70-year captivity and most scholars believe that Daniel was taken as a early to mid-teenager, 16 to 18 years of age. 70 years go by, it's not hard to figure out that Daniel's in his late 80s. So he's an older guy. And talk about a guy that's been fighting the good fight. You know, from the time he was a teenager, he's a captive in a foreign land, and yet he has continued to take stands for God. Would to God that we could do the same, right? In our cushy lives, you know, sometimes we think we have it so hard until we look at how Daniel had to endure his life, right? Whatever you may be going on, maybe going through and maybe going on in your life tonight, be of good cheer. It could get worse, <laughs> right? Just compare yourself to Daniel, and I think it will hearten you that uh, we have a lot of good things to celebrate. Now, what was going on at this time is that there was a movement of captives returning to the Holy Land, to Israel. This is recorded in the book of Ezra, and I I think it's important that you see this, so go ahead and find Ezra. You gotta go back uh, before the Psalms, right before the book of Nehemiah, and I wanna just show you some of the timelines and things that are going on so you can see the battle within the battle. This is Ezra 1, verse one, Ezra 1, Verse one, now it says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now we saw it was the third year in Daniel 10.1, Ezra 1.1 says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, word of the Lord, Ezra 1.1, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, they're a world empire at this point, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now you all know that in 586 BC, in the last wave of the besieging of the land of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the temple, and it was laid in rubble and it laid there in rubble for 70 years. Ezra returned along with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and we'll look at that in a moment, and began to address what was in rubble. Uh, 50,000 Israelites returned from Babylon 
approximately. Flip over to Ezra 2. Take a look. You can see now these... You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. But first... The Book of Ruth is a tiny gem in scriptures. Its story goes much deeper than we see on the surface. It's a story of loving kindness, hope, and redemption. Naomi and Ruth face some of life's biggest challenges, and Boaz becomes their redeemer. Looking deeper, the lady's story is our story, and Boaz is a picture of our ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. This book will give you hope through the toughest seasons and lead you back to the answer, our God, who is filled with loving kindness and is our hope. For your donation of $20 or more, we would like to give you a copy of the CD set or DVD by Pastor Michael Lance, Ruth, the Lord of the Harvest. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk in Truth. Fifty thousand Israelites returned from Babylon approximately. Flip over to Ezra 2. Take a look. You can see now these, verse 1, are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles, Ezra 2, 1, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem, to Judah, each to his city. Now, I am not going to read this list to you, and I'm sure you're all very grateful for it. But if you scan it really quick in your Bible, notice that you have names and numbers. And if you go down in the section uh, and you total up, uh, just you know, go, go on down to verse 40. You got Levites listed there, singers, sons of Asaph. You got 128 listed there. You've got in verse 42, gatekeepers. You've got more and more numbers and so forth. If you skip down all the way to verse 65, Servants are listed there, 7,337. Uh, if you combine that with the whole assembly numbered at 42,360 in verse 64 of Ezra 2, you can see how we are getting close to a number of 50,000. And so this is the number of people that returned after the captivity. But they returned to a state of rubble. And the bigger sad disappointment in someone like Daniel's heart and mind, being close to 90, a side note, he never went back. He did not return to the land that he loved. So his prayer and his agonizing and his desire to understand was not for him. It was for his people. And for some of you who are a little older in this room and maybe for some of you, you've passed the midway point of your life. When, when that happens, you start to think in bigger terms of just your own lifetime. You start to think about children and grandchildren and what they will inherit and how well you've stewarded what God entrusted to you. How well you've stewarded the heritage of a country and of, of course the heritage of a call. For me as a pastor um, and a dad and of course as a husband, things uh, like stewardship mean a lot to me. And so I, I begin to think in those terms that I'm not, I'm not just acting and praying for myself when I have to take a stand on an issue or uh, you know, make sure my voice is heard in terms of the clarity of the word of God or, or make a call to the church 
it, it's bigger than just an individual. And I, and I want you guys to see that for Daniel, that's what it was. He wasn't doing this for himself. He, he didn't go back. He was almost 90. He may have been too feeble. But he still believed that he could fight through prayer. And some of you, you know, you're, you're at a point in your life where maybe you, you feel like, well, I'm a, I'm a little out of the, uh, the war in the sense that maybe I'm not on the front lines anymore. But you can still battle in prayer. And your battle can be in the heavenlies, if you will, fighting the good fight of faith for others who may have to do the work in the future. You could think of maybe perhaps Daniel praying for guys like Nehemiah and Ezra who were younger at this time and saying, Lord, would you strengthen them to finish well? Um, so th those are things that we need to think about as, we, as time goes by. In chapter four, you get an idea of the battle. It says in verse three of Ezra four, but Zerubbabel, and Joshua, or Joshua, the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Uh, what happened, and this is inevitable when you're doing the work of God, there was opposition. The people of the land, namely here the Samaritans, began to oppose the real rebuilding project of the temple. They would prefer it be in rubble. And so notice what happened. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, these 50,000 or so that returned, and frightened them from building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what we know from other scriptures is that when this happened, the king got somewhat annoyed about the conflict and the building project to rebuild the temple stalled for 16 years. The work was put on hold because of pressure, fear tactics, and you name it. And this wouldn't be the first time that the enemy used fear and discouragement and distraction to stall out the work of God or to stall out something that God's called you or me to. And I'll tell you this, that even with the 16 years stall out, it was still, I think, in 515 BC that the temple was uh, re-erected and rededicated. If you go from 586 to 515, that's around what? 70 years. And so another 70 years from the destruction in 586 to the rededication of the temple in 515. So God even used the, de the delay to be divine. So sometimes we think, oh man, it's been this many years since I've, you know, maybe I, I got distracted or I got off track or whatever. The Lord can even use those delays for his purposes. And so um, spiritual warfare was happening and I want you to see around the rebuilding of the temple through very human means. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, but it sure seems like we wrestle against flesh and blood, which just means people. And so sometimes I, when I read Paul's uh, words that we don't wrestle against people, I wanna say, Paul, are you sure? <laughs> because people certainly seem to be the problem in most instances. But people are often pawns in satanic conception. Not every time, not behind every tree, 
Not in every circumstance. But in these big things, the attempt to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, you could be assured that the devil did not want that to happen and that he was gleeful that it laid in rubble for 70 years. Because remember, his target sites have been leveled against the people of Israel, really, from the beginning. So this is what we have. Now, in that delay time, there's a scripture in the book of Haggai, which is right before Zechariah, towards the end of the Old Testament. And Pastor Michael is already realizing that this will be a two-part message, so don't, don't get too nervous, because some of you are saying, there's like 20-something verses, and he, he's done one verse. Oh, Lord, help him. <laughs> I feel you. All right? But we're not going to do the whole chapter tonight, so be a good cheer. Just find Haggai, because I'm even struggling to find it up here. Haggai, chapter one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? This house, the temple, lies desolate. Verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to be put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, someone might ask. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs uh, to his own house. Now this is during that 16 year lapse where the people decided that they would just be about their own business instead of God's business. And it's very easy to do in a world like ours to lose sight that the Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be what? They'll be added to you. And we get distracted and there, look, there's a lot of things to distract us. But oftentimes, we'd have to say there's been periods of the church and perhaps it's true today. I'll let you make your own uh, conclusion that the church can often be categorized as pitiful. And I'm sorry to say it, and I count myself among that group that oftentimes there's no other word than pitiful, lethargic. Um, everything else comes first and the things of God suffer. There's been periods of time when the church has been revived and whenever we talk about revival, we're talking about the church, not the world, the church. And when the church wakes up and gets busy, good things happen. And I, I do pray that we're on uh, the cusp of a revival in this country. Turn to the next book to your right. This is Zechariah 3, and it gives you this picture of this warfare that's going on with the leaders of the nation of Israel at this time when you have this backdrop. Zechariah 3, look at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, who would represent the nation here as the high priest, 
standing before the angel of the Lord, Zechariah 3.1, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Zechariah 3.2, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire or plucked from the captivity, if you will? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy or befouled garments standing before the angel. This is strong language. Literally, it could be fouled with excrement. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Keep in mind, he's the high priest. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord, most would see Jesus here standing by. Hey guys, it's incredible that we're entering the holiday season now. And we have a wonderful product to offer to you as a thank you for a donation of $20 or more to the ongoing ministry of Walk in Truth. It's called Lord of the Harvest. It's a teaching through the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is more than just what you see on the surface. It's really a story of loving kindness, hope, and redemption. As Naomi and Ruth face some of life's biggest challenges, but meet a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. When we look a little deeper, their story is our story, and Boaz is a picture of our ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. I would love to get this product into your hands. Go to our website at walkintruth.com or call 844-48-TRUTH, and we'll get this product in your hands. And for a donation of $20 or more, you'll be helping us reach more people and reach out with God's truth this holiday season. We appreciate it. We love you. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.